The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Now, so take your Bibles and please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we're continuing our talk about love and particularly about the subject of Christ-like love. And you know, love, the word love has fallen on hard times, hasn't it? It's used for any and everything. Fortunately, in the English, we only have one word, love. It means so many things. You can say you love your car, you love your wife, you love your dog, you love your new dress. And it has to mean different things, doesn't it? If you think about it. Some of you have confused looks. Maybe you love your husband and dog the same way. I don't know. Well, the Greeks didn't have that problem. They had many different words for different kinds of love, but, you know, when I was preparing, it reminded me of a story of a girl who went to a friend's house for a weekend, and it was supper time. Their mother was preparing dinner, and the little girl responded, hey, what's that? She said, oh, it's broccoli. She said, oh, I love broccoli. And when it was dinner time, they were sitting around the table. She noticed that little girl passed the plate onto the next person and didn't take any broccoli. And she said, well, I thought you said you love broccoli. She said, yeah, I love broccoli, just not enough to eat it. And I think that's how, you know, we express love. It's easier to talk about than to actually profess it, express it for something or someone. And agape love is different. Agape is different because it addresses the issue of self-sacrifice. Agape love or guides kind of love has to do with sacrificing of yourself for the well-being of somebody else. So when we talk about Love like Jesus, we're talking about sacrificing kind of love. The word has little to do with emotion. It has little to do with feelings. It's an act of will. It chooses an object, and through thick and thin, regardless of how attractive it is, it loves it until the end. That's the agape kind of love. And it goes beyond the golden rule. So everybody... Maybe we should start it with the golden rule. Does everybody remember what the golden rule is? What's the golden rule? A what? Did somebody say, treat others as you'd like to be treated? You guys are all wrong. 2021, tweet others as you like to be tweeted. That's my dad joke, Sorry. But last week, we looked at the pattern of Christ-like love, and we talked about that it was a selfless love. We looked at John 13, verses 34 and 35. It was a selfless love. It was a steadfast love. He loved them until the end. Uh, He was a servant love. He girded himself, even though he knew who he was, where he came from. He came from God, and he was going back to God. He still took the role of a slave, girded himself, took a towel, and washed their feet. And it was serving love, and so it was sanctifying love. Sanctifying love, a love that forgives. So we look at the pattern of love last week, and this week I want to look at the priority of love. And the Bible's simplest description of God is a description of himself as we read in 1 John verse, uh, chapter 4, 16. It says, and we have known and believed the love that God has for us. And then the simplest description, God is love. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Therefore, the simplest and most profound description of Christian character should be what? Love. And it's tragic that today in many churches, and as this ancient Corinth church, we're going to find out, uh, the priority of love was taking the back seat. So I want to read with you today the first, the entire chapter, but we're only going to look at the first three verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. Though I speak with tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clangling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits be nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. 
does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, it's not provoke, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. But wherever there are prophecies, they will fail. Wherever there are tongues, they will cease. Wherever there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesize in part. But when which is perfect has come, then which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put child things, childish things, I put away childish things. For now we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I know also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three things, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Now this chapter is breath of fresh air and an oasis of desert full of problems. Now I'm going to say something that's completely, it's going to be profound, it's going to Blow your mind. You ready for this? Chapter 13 is stuck between chapter 12 and 14. Did you get that? Now, if you've studied Corinthians, you know what chapters 12 and 14 deal with. They deal with spiritual gifts. And why in the middle of spiritual gifts, Paul gives us the entire chapter on love? Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. It's overall, it's a, really a decent church. It has its problems like every other church. It's a big church. It does not lack any spiritual gifts. They have plenty of pastors, staff music, ministers on staff, Sunday school teachers, nursery workers. It was a very gifted church. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1.7. He says, so that you come short in no gift. They're not short in any gifts. And their statement of faith was pretty good because in 1 Corinthians, he says, you know, chapter 11, verse 2, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember all me in all things and keep traditions just as I delivered to, to you. So whatever he delivered them to them, they're keeping. They were not lacking in gifts, talent. Yet it was a troubled church because if you paid attention in the first three verses, Paul says, if you have this but have no love, you're nothing. Love was absent. Because it's easier for us to be orthodox than to be loving. It's easier for us to be active in church and work in the church than to be loving. Yet, the supreme characteristic that God demands of his people, the trademark, is love. And Corinthian church was high on emphasis upon gifts, and especially those showy gifts, you know, they dealing with healings and so forth and prophesizing and all that stuff. And somehow they were thinking they were super saints, they're better than others and so forth because they had these gifts. But Paul says love is absent. So in, right in the middle of this, in order to set them straight, Paul teaches them about love. And I want to say before we get into the message, a marker of a spirit-filled person is not a spiritual gift. Everybody has a spiritual gift. Even baby Christians have spiritual gifts. They might not have discovered it, but everybody has a gift. It is yours. And so the spiritual gift is not a matter we're showing, show a gift. It could be performing miracles. It could be a, a humble like service. But spiritual gift is not a sign that you are spiritual. The mark that you are a spiritual person is not the gifts of the Spirit, but it's the fruit of the Spirit. That's the mark of a spiritual person. And what's the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? The first love is love, joy, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. The first and chief love, the rest flow out of that. Without the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit cannot operate except in the flesh. You can still operate them, but they'll be in the flesh. And that's how they become counterfeit and counterproductive. They can function in your own energy and flesh, but they're counterfeit. 
Though the fruit of the Spirit gives us motivation to power to minister the gifts of the Spirit. And like all spiritual living, how, how do we get the gifts of the Spirit? How do we get the fruit of the Spirit? You have to be walking in the Spirit. You can't have the fruit of the Spirit if you're not walking in the Spirit. Therefore, he writes to Galatians 5.16, I say, then walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So when you're walking in the Spirit, you're producing the fruit of the Spirit. If you're not walking in the Spirit, he says here, you're going to produce it out of the flesh. And continues on in verse 25, he tells the Galatians, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So we need to understand that this agape love, folks, you can't just whip it up. You can't get up in the morning and say, okay, I've been cranky for three days. Today is Sunday. I'm going to get up and start loving everybody. You know, you go to your Facebook, Instagram, look at a picture that says, you know, love never fails. You read a couple of Bible verses and you say, okay, I'm going to love everybody. That's not how it works. Only walking in the Spirit makes the believer spiritual. And to walk in the Spirit means you turn your life over to His control. You confess your sins. You allow the Spirit of God to govern your thoughts, patterns. And as the Spirit of God controls you, He produces fruit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. And love will only come that way, folks. And the Corinthian Christians, they were not walking in the Spirit. They were selfish. They were self-designing, self-willed, self-motivated, doing everything possible to promote their own agendas, their own interests, their own welfare. Everyone was doing what, you know, for his own good. No regard for others. And then Corinthians did not lack any gifts, but they were terribly deficient in spiritual fruit because they were not walking in the source of the power. And when you stray from the source of love, it's impossible for you to be loving. Now, the agape love is the rarest, you know, I'm going to throw some Greek words at you, but I try to not teach Greek, but with this, I kind of have to a little bit. Agape is the rarest words in ancient Greek literature, but it's interesting, it's one of the most common words in the New Testament. Again, it does not refer to sentiment or feeling. You know, we have city of Philadelphia, philia. It means brotherly love. There's arrows that was used uh, for sexual love, you know, relations between a man and a woman. Agape does not mean charity either. And this chapter that we're studying is the best definition the Bible gives us of the agape love. So that's why we're going to take our time going through it. The problem, however, is only a few people have any idea what true love is. You know, you're mean to me because you told me the truth including many Christians. We often think of love as a nice feelings, warm affection, romance, desire, but self-giving love, love that demands something from us. This love is more concerned with giving than receiving. Is much rarer in our churches today as it was in the day of Corinth. And the supreme measure of the example of agape love is God's love. And it's demonstrated in John 3.16. I think everybody knows it. We put it on the wall up there in the hallway. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is the definition, main definition of agape love. We didn't deserve anything. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Love is above all sacrificial. It's a sacrifice of self for self of others. And those who may not even care for you, or may even, they may even hate you. But love is willing, joyful desire to put welfare of others above your own. And why is this? Why is God commanding us to do this? Remember, he gave a new commandment to give you. In Romans 5.10, we read, For if when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We were enemies of God, but yet he chose love. He demonstrated his love for us. And everything that Christian does should be done in love. And he actually writes this to Corinthians later on in 1 Corinthians 16, 14. He says, let all that you do 
be done with love. Right theology, folks, is not a substitute for love. Religious works are no substitute for love. Nothing substitutes love. Christians have no excuse for not loving. And then he, can, he uses a hyperbole here. He kind of exaggerates. So we're, we're going to look at three verses here. I want you to understand he kind of exaggerates to the extremes to make his point. And he says in 1 Corinthians 13:1, Though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And what's interesting here, in the spirit of this love, in which he's talking about, Paul changes to the first person. Did you see that? Not though you speak. He changes and says, though I speak with tongues and so forth. He includes himself with the Corinthians. And Paul imagines himself being able to speak to the greatest possible eloquence with the tongues of men and angels. And this is the gift the Corinthians prized so highly, they abused it so greatly because they, it was counterfeit. Because they knew it was the greatest gift. You know, the apostles, I'm sure they heard of apostles in Bible and Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit came and they spoke in tongues. Well, it was not gibberish tongues. It was known languages. That's why it lists all the nationalities in there. But they were counterfeit because they were saying they were speaking in some other tongue that you just don't know what tongue I'm speaking in. And it was counterfeit. And Paul's basic point here is convey the idea that you're able to speak all sorts of languages with great fluency and eloquence, far above the greatest linguist or orator, and you have no love. It's nothing. And there is no, and he says of angels, he kind of exaggerate. there is no teaching a unique special language of the angels in, uh, or dialect and countless of records of speaking to men in scriptures, angels, they speak in the language that people know. Remember when, when angels announced uh, the birth of Jesus Christ, they came to the shepherds. They, they spoke in his language, right? Many, many records, in, like I mentioned before in Acts 2, it lists everybody in this analogy and it says they heard in their own tongue. And Paul himself describes, remember when he was on the road to Damascus? And God stopped him? Well, look how he describes it in Acts 26, 14. And again, Paul is a very educated man. He knows culture. He knows different languages. And it says this, And when we have fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying it in what? Hebrew language. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard to kick against the ground. Why didn't God just talk to him in Greek? French, Italian? Or better yet, God knew he was going to write this down in Scripture. Why not make it fancy and say, God talked to me in some angelic voice or something like that? No, because God speaks to you in the language that you would understand. He says Hebrew's language, Paul's mother language. So I don't want to get stuck on languages today, but, uh, but another time. But, but the reason I want to point that out is because that is a gateway to all kind of other heresies and false teachings. I'm, I'm being serious with you. It's a gateway. And some people are just confused. They might not understand it, but if you just take the time and you study the Scripture in an orderly fashion, you would see that. So it's a gateway, and I just want to make you aware of that. If you see somebody saying, oh, you don't possess the Holy Spirit because you don't speak in tongues, you can give them my favorite Greek word, baloney. <laughs> So what he's saying here, the greatest truth spoken in the greatest way falls short if they're not spoken in love. Folks, if I get up here and my thing is just to beat you down, I'm a sounding brass. But to tell you the truth in love, if you don't do that, you just noise. Apart from love, even the one who speaks truth with supernatural eloquence becomes just noise. And Paul chooses this illustration of lovelessness because, again, it's a most sought-after experience and made people proud. Hey, I speak prophecies. I speak in tongues. And as a result, Corinthians was trying to use that gift in their own power for their own selfish and proud ends, and it could not be ministered 
in love because they did not walk in the Spirit, they did not have the fruit of the Spirit, and could not properly minister that gift. And the most importantly, again, the fruit was missing. The most important gift was exercise and become nothing more than just a babble. That's what he was telling them. In New Testament times, rites honoring pagan gods and so forth, they had ecstatic noises accompanied by smashing gongs, cymbals, and noise and so forth. And Paul illustrates here that speaking any other human language, or even, he exaggerated, if there was angelic language, let's say you spoke that, but even if you spoke that, and you spoke it without love, you're nothing. You may be a great speaker, but... That's no substitute for love. No matter how great your skills are, beautiful your speech is, how brilliant your rhetoric is, without love, you're simply a clanging cymbal. Have anybody been to a cymbal solo? Anybody try to look for a record for our music is just cymbal music? You know, in and itself, it's nothing, but there is a purpose, a proper purpose for it, but in themselves, it's a, there's no music, there's no melody, there's no nothing. So it doesn't matter how accurately you say it, without love is just noise. Without love, talk truly is cheap. You see, a person can get up here and move your emotions. You know, one time I had the privilege before he passed away listening to Zig Ziglar speak in live. Oh boy, he's got some skills. He was talking for an hour and a half. I thought it was like 15 minutes. He's got very good skills. He can move your emotions. He can, the rhetoric can move a person's mind. A great speech can move the will, but only great love can move the person's heart. You know, speech can move people to tears, but only love can move them to Jesus. And some of you know, gift this, they don't understand that love is necessary to truly teach and preach the Word of God. And we got a lot of Dr. Sounding Brass and Dr. Tinkle symbol preaching these days. The Word has, the world has heard enough loveless sermons, they're just showy gifts. And folks, I've said it before, but the mark of a spirit-filled person is not speaking in other languages or tongues, it's controlling the tongue you have and letting love flow out of that. And then he moves on to say that love is greater than prophecy. And though I have the gift of prophecy, in verse 2 he says, and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, and all I thought I had all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. He also says prophecy, not only speaking in tongues and angelic voices and so forth, but prophecy. You know, it's going further, going further, lift the languages, but be able to speak eloquently, be able to speak in the voice of angels, which I think I have when I sang. But then to have this gift of prophecy, the gift of prophecy is the ultimate gift. And if you read in chapter 14, he tells him this, uh, because the prophet proclaims God's worth, God's truth to the people so they can understand it and apply it. And First uh, Corinthians fourteen one, he says, "Pursue love, desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you prophesy." Now, prophecy has two aspects. You know, uh, revelation in the Bible when the prophet spoke, revelation of God when God spoke to the prophets and they spoke it, and then also reiteration, like respeaking the revelation of God. So there is no new prophecies. All we're doing is just restating what's already been stated. So I simply respeak as the Bible as I read it. All the prophecies are here, so there's nothing new that is going to come. This is it. So if you study the example of the sermons of Peter, sermons of Paul, sermons of Stephen's, they always quoted the New Testament, and then the New Testament, they kind of revealed the new truth, but now we have everything kind of revealed. So you have that element of prophecy, revelation, and then respeaking it. But even if I had the ability to speak God's word for the first time, if I had the power to proclaim old truth with the force and meaning and dynamic drama, whatever you want to call it, and I don't have love, I am nothing. 
And prophecy, the word also means to speak before someone. He's talking about people who, in public proclamation, they stand out in front of people eloquently, dramatically, speak God's word, and they teach it. Can you imagine this gift? The power to declare the things of God, the power to interpret life, the power to bring the word of heaven to earth, the power to draw eternity. Folks, but he says, without love, if you had that skill, you're a zero. You're a zero. So how should we prophesize? How should we preach? How should we proclaim the word of God? He wrote to Ephesians in 4.15, says, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into, in him who is the head Christ. But speaking the truth in love. Do you see that? There has to be a balance. There has to be a balance. And I always felt that two enemies of pastors and preachers is the first enemy is departure from this truth. And the second enemy is the indifference to the people that are sitting in the pews. And there's many pastors these days who are out of balance. And I myself have to watch that too. There are, pe- there are people who had great love for people, but they don't give them the truth. They don't ever diligently prepare or study God's word to give them the truth. There are people who give the truth, but then they don't care about the people. That's the other extreme. There are people in the name of love that are people watered down the gospel so much that it's not really the kind of love people need because love without any truth, you know what happens? That kind of love doesn't protect people from error when they step outside these doors. It doesn't. And that's why some people are walking around following whatever sounds good versus discovering what the true Bible teaches. You know, people say doctrine divides. Of course it does. It separates truth from error. On the other hand, people who just opt out for the truth, they don't love people in the pew. And then the people who are sitting in the pews, hey, if my pastor don't love me, then God probably doesn't love me either. And then they start opting out. So there has to be a balance. There are preachers with no love. There are preachers who have one objective, folks, and it's not to uh, feed the flock, but it's to fleece the flock. They don't, don't love people, and they're there for power, prestige, personal gain, or to make money, or somehow they're up for the highest bidder. bidder. It's true, folks, but it's sad, but it's true. Let me show you one, actually, in the Bible. There are lots of dinar these days, but I'm sure you heard of Balaam. And if you haven't, if I say the story of a donkey, you'll probably remember Balaam. We read about Balaam in Numbers 24, 15 through 16. He says, so he took up his oracle and said, so this is Balaam. He's a prophet. The utterance of Balaam, son of Beor, and the utterance of the man whose eyes are opened. Verse 16, the utterance of him who hears the words of God, who hears the words of God, and has the knowledge of the Most High, He sees the vision of the Almighty who falls down with eyes wide open. That's the description of Balaam. He got a good thing going. Has the knowledge of the Most High. He sees the vision of Almighty. He hears the words from God directly. And then in verse 17, he says, this is Balaam. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. Here's the prophecy. God, I see this happening. Not now. Something's coming. I shall behold him, but not near. Scepter will rise out of Israel. Who is that? That's prophesizing the coming of Messiah because the scepter is, if you read Genesis 49.10, it says the scepter shall not depart from Judah. It's, it's the Messiah. Listen, here's a man who was given this marvelous privilege to prophesy, predict the Messiah. Say, fantastic. He must have been something, right? No. He was nothing. Why? Because you go down to Numbers 25.1, it says, Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and people began, began to commit harlotry with Mo, women of Moab. Now, the prophet had told them about the Messiah. 
And the next thing we find out is the people are committing whoredom with daughters of Moab. Maybe we could say, well, you can't blame Balaam for that. Maybe they just didn't listen to the fellow, right? No. Look at Numbers 31, 16. Look, these women caused the children of Israel through what? The counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and there was a great plague among the congregation of the Lord. Now, wait a minute. Balaam, the prophet of God who knew the truth, spoke the truth, same guy? Yes, but he didn't love people. He didn't love people. The Moabites came and said, Hey, Balaam, how much you want to corrupt the people of Israel? We'll pay you. And they bought him off. Balaam was a prophet of God, but he knew the true God. He knew God's truth, but he had no love for God's people. And with little hesitation, he agreed to curse Israelites in return for a generous payment from Balak, the king of Moab's. And what was his end result? Numbers 31.8 says, The killed of kings of Midian, the rest of those who were killed, Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Reba, and five kings of Midian, Balaam, the son of Beor, also killed with the sword. He was killed with the sword. And through history, folks, you know, we recognize his donkey as being more fit for ministry than Balaam himself. There's got to be that genuine love, genuine concern for people. And it wasn't there. Balaam prostituted it. He turned it into hate and sent against God, and it cost him his life. And Jesus says this thing about these kind of prophets and people and teachers in Matthew 7, 21, 22. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does my will of my Father into heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have I not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Many will say to me, said, hey, God, this is Balaam. Remember, I prophesied your name. I prophesied your coming. I prophesied the, you know, the Messiah. And he hears these words in verse 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Counterfeit prophets. To speak the truth without love is nothing. It's counterfeit. It's empty. You know, we can draw a crowd in the area if we tell them we're going to tell them about prophecy because people want to hear what's going to happen, right? Want some kind of insights especially in the book of Revelation. But when we talk about love, not a lot of people are interested in that. So you say, how can this apply to me? Well, do you really love the people you speak to about Christ? You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a teacher. You don't have to be a deacon. Family members, friends, relatives, do you love those people that you share Christ with? Do you do deeds of self-sacrifice for them? Maybe you are a teacher. Do you love the people that you teach? Do you love them enough to make a sacrifice on their behalf in a personal way? You see, the power behind the message is not how eloquently I speak. And we all know that's not true, right? (laughs) It's not the rhetoric, but it's the motive. The motive. The motive is love, or the message is empty. The power of the message isn't vocabulary, cleverness, diction. It's the genuine loving heart of man who has that message for the people that he's directing that message to. And let me show you such a man in the Bible also. uses just biblical examples. He was a great fella, hard ministry. His name is Jeremiah. And I kind of want to go with you in a fast order about Jeremiah so you can understand who he was and then see his attitude. And Jeremiah 1.5 says this, Before I formed you, this is God speaking, you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. So first of all, he didn't have a choice. God already made it before he was even born. You know, when people struggle with sovereignty of God, should study the subject of God's call with prophets. All of them came the same way. Isaiah, Peter, everybody proclaimed even disciples. God called them. So he was God's chosen vessel. 
And then Jeremiah 1.6, it says, Then I said, Oh, Lord, behold, I cannot speak, for I am of youth. I'm too young to do this. I can't speak. Remember, Moses had the same thing. And then in verse 7, it says, But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am of youth, for you shall go to all whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Folks, to me, that sounds terrific. I wish the Lord just said to me what to say to you guys without any preparation, without any studying. Just go along, open your mouth. He put it all there. That's it. You just, he's got to be feeling pretty good. I don't have to study or nothing. Just go over there and tell him what he said. Okay. And then he says in verse 8, Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then I'll be scratching my head and be like, all right, what's, what's, what's going on here? Do not be afraid of their faces. What does that mean? They're going to get ugly. They're going to screw their faces at you. They're going to throw some stones at you. But don't be afraid. So I, I'll deliver you. All right. So whatever happens, he's going to make sure that I'm all right. He's going to deliver me. And his whole lifetime is going to be delivering from things. Then he goes on in verse 9, says, The Lord put forth his hand, touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Awesome statement, right? I don't have to prepare nothing. And then verse 10 says, See, I have this date set over nations and over the kingdoms to root out, to pull out down, to destroy, and to throw down, to build, and to plant. Look, to me, I'd be the greatest Bible verse power of preaching. God's going to put words in my mouth. I'm going to go out there. And I'm, he's setting me over nations, over kingdoms to root out, pull out, destroy, throw down, and build up and to plant. Preaching is the ability to rule nations, kingdoms. Preaching has tremendous power. And then he goes on in verse 16, says, I will utter my judgments against them concerning all their wickedness because they have forsaken me, burn incense to other gods, and worship the works of their own hands. And Jeremiah, again, remember we studied the Habakkuk. He's also the prophet of that time. So there was a lot of wickedness going on in the nation. So he's going to utter judgments. Hey, God sent me. I'm going to be judging you guys. And then he says in verse 17, Therefore prepare yourself and arise and speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay before you. And he says, and you better go in there and speak with authority. Do not be dismayed because I'm going to make you look bad. So speak with authority because you have my words. There's no doubting. Just go in there and tell him. And in verse 18, he says, For behold, I have made you this day, speaking Jeremiah, a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against its princes, against its priests, and against the people of the land. I've made you a fortified city. An iron pillar and the bronze against, he's basically creating bulletproof Jeremiah. Bulletproof Jeremiah. You know, you just go in. Nothing's going to touch you. And you can just, you know, put yourself in that situation. You're saying, I'm going to go in there. I'm going to tell them what's up. And tell all these sinners what's up. God's going to judge them and so forth. But Jeremiah, here he is. An iron pillar, bulletproof Jeremiah. Look at his attitude. If we go down to Jeremiah 4, 19, he's been preaching just for four chapters. And he says this, Oh, my soul, my soul, I am pained in my very heart. My heart makes a noise in me. I cannot hold peace because you have heard, oh, my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. God's prophesying through him. He says, go tell this to my people. And his heart, I'm not a cardiologist, but his heart, making a noise, something wasn't right. Something wasn't right. Bulletproof Jeremiah, his sticker was sticking louder and louder than he's supposed to because he was hearing what he has to tell to the people. And he says, I cannot hold my peace. Trumpet of war. He's saying to these people, you're going to take them into captivity. You're going to get destroyed. There's a coming war. The Babylonians are going to come. They're going to take you captive. And he says, I can't stand it. 
It makes my heart run. It makes my soul grieve. What's going to happen? You see, why is that? Because he loved his people. And Jeremiah 8.18 says, I would comfort myself in sorrow. My heart is faint in me. It feels like he's going to have a heart attack. He's having anxiety, you know, heart's keeping beats. And then he continues in Jeremiah 8, uh, 20 through 21. He says, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the hurt of the daughter of my people, I am hurt. I am mourning. Astonishment has taken a hold of me. And there is no balm in Gilead. There's no physician there. Why? There's no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people. He says, I am hurt because of my daughter. But let me show you something in verse 20. The harvest is past, the summer is set. And notice this, bulletproof Jeremiah, that God's going to protect them, he's not going to be touched. He says, notice this, he doesn't say, you are not saved. People, I'm coming here to declare you are not saved. He says, we are not saved. Why? Because it's the love of his heart for his people. He can't separate himself from his people. This is empathy. He says, we are not safe. The hurt of my daughter. In Jeremiah 9.1, he says, that head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of daughter of my people. You know what his nickname was? The weeping prophet. The weeping prophet. Now, he could have said, you guys are all sinners. Babylonian captivity. You did it to yourself. You're gone. No, he identifies with the people. He says, we are not saved. He weeps over them. That's what true love causes you to do. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. If you look at Luke 19, 41 through 44, now he drew near, he saw a city, and what? Wept over it. Why did he wept over it? Verse 42, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this, that your day, the things that make for you peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground that they will need not leave in you one stone upon another. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. What caused them to do that? Why was he weeping? Why would you say, well, you guys deserve it. You didn't know the day of your visitation. The Bible clearly proclaims the Old Testament that I am the Messiah. You didn't listen to me. It's that love. Paul was no different. If you look at Acts 20, 19, he says this, they're serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of who? The Jews, right? It says the plotting of the Jews. So his own were sticking Sticks in his wheels. But then in Romans, we read, Paul wept over Israel. In Romans 9, verse, uh, verses 1 through 3, says, I tell you the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing my witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Why? For I could wish I myself were accursed for Christ, for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. These people who caused the merry many sorrows, the plotting of the Jews. He is saying, I want to be cursed so they can be saved. What caused them to do that? Love. Paul ministered with great love in large measure because he ministered with great power because he ministered with great love. So he's saying love is greater than prophecy. Then he moves on and says, love is greater than knowledge. If you continue reading in verse 2, though I have grift of prophecy and all understanding, all mysteries and all knowledge, and have not all faith so that I can remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Just as with prophecy, without love is nothing. Understanding all mysteries and having all knowledge is nothing. Paul uses uh, this phrase, Ultimate human understanding. So mysteries. For me, mysteries represent all the divine spiritual understanding. And knowledge will be all that represent the factual human understanding. 
And in scripture, term mystery always signifies the divine truth that God has hidden in the Old Testament for men for some time, and then he reveals the truth in the New Testament. So in Matthew 13, 11, he's answered to them and said, because it's not given to you to know the mysteries of kingdom of heaven, but to them he has not been given. And in Ephesians 3, 3, 3, 5, he says how that revelation, he made known to me the mystery. So this revelation now is the mystery I've briefly written already by which you have read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. So God opens up all these mysteries. And if he could perfectly understand all the unrevealed divine mysteries, and all mysteries are revealed, Paul assists, Without love, he still would be nothing. Spiritual understanding would count for nothing without the supreme spiritual fruit, which is love. This indicates to us a great priority of love. And we can know as much as God knows, that's what he's trying to say, and still be nothing without love. Adding all knowledge would not help. If I could comprehend the creator and all the creation, I'd still be a zero without love. It produces, you know, knowledge, he says, without love is just ignorance. It produces snobbery, pride, arrogance. And spiritual knowledge is good. It's beautiful. It's fruitful when it's held in humility and ministered in love. And I want to kind of, you know, we studied the uh, Proverbs. It says, obtain wisdom and knowledge and all those things. So Paul is not diminishing knowledge in any way. But he says this to Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 8, 1. Now concerning these things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So what's the motive of your knowledge? And he's not depreciating because he writes to Timothy. He tells him in 2 Timothy 2.15, says, Be diligent to present yourself approved by God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the truth, the word, word of the truth. How are you going to divide that if you don't study it? You have to obtain knowledge. And Philippians, he wrote in Philippians 1.9, And this I pray that you love may abound still more and more in knowledge in all discernment. So we cannot be edified or, or obey what we do not know but we can know and not obey and not be strengthened. Only love brings real knowledge and discernment. And folks, I know some people that can tell you the meaning of a third toe and a left foot of some beast in Revelation. You know, they can split theological hair seven equal parts. And that is fine. It's splendid. But God's saying, without love, it's an absolute zero. It's nothing. And then he moves on and says, love is greater than faith. If you look at verse 2 again. And though I have all faith, and folks, if Paul didn't depreciate love, uh, knowledge, he definitely does not depreciate faith. Uh, no one preached the necessity of faith, especially the saving faith, more strongly and more about it than Paul. But he's not speaking here of saving faith, but the faith of confidence and the expectancy of the Lord. It is he's addressing believers who already have the saving faith. Having all faith that I could remove mountains refers to trusting God to do mighty things on behalf of his children. And this is a wonderful gift because sometimes we lose faith, don't we? We get down. We don't know. We know we should trust them, but we don't. And God, Paul is saying here, without, if you have all that faith, but there's no love, you're nothing. And Jesus speaks of faith in Matthew 17, 20. He says to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. So if even you have this kind of faith, without love, you're nothing. And again, 
Jesus is doing what Paul's doing here. You're kind of over-exaggerating because a lot of people get mixed up here and they say, I've never seen anyone move a mountain. God doesn't want people moving mountains around. Don't you think that will create all kinds of problems if we had faith that we can move mountains? Jesus doesn't want somebody taking the mountain olives and dumping it in the Dead Sea or something. That will mess up the second coming. But what he's saying here, if you had that kind of faith, Faith that goes beyond, you know, you believe in God continually when everybody else have opted out, we bailed out, and you continue going in faith, trusting him completely, without love, you're nothing. It says, trust in the Lord, all faith, but without love, it would be nothing. We know the story of Jonah, Right? Everybody familiar with the story of Jonah? Fled from the presence of the Lord, and the whale swallowed him after a storm, and he spent a night in a foam blubber mattress. One of the aspects in that story that we kind of overlook, Jonah had great faith. You know? Jonah had great faith. But because of his great belief, of his great faith in the effectiveness of God's word, he resisted preaching to Nineveh. He was not afraid of failure. He was afraid of success. He had great faith in the power of God's word. His problem was he didn't love people. He had no love for them. Not even after they repented. He did not want them saved. He was a resentful. He was resentful to the Lord for saving them. You know, and there's a great miracle behind his preaching. I mean, even the animals were covered with sackcloth to represent repentance. And God graciously spared Nineveh, but this is what he says in Jonah 4, first three verses. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to tarnish. For I know you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. What kind of hatred is that? Everything Jonah acknowledged the Lord to be, the prophet himself was not. And he didn't want it to be. And to me, that's more loveless man of God. It's hard to imagine. His faith told him there was great success. Go to Nebuchadnezzar, preach. Preach. But he didn't love the people. He was nothing. And then he continues to say, feeding the poor, love is greater than feeding the poor. He says, if I bestow all my goods, in verse 3, to feed the poor, and I give my body to be burned, but have not love, profits me nothing. Agape love is always self-sacrificing. But self-sacrificing does not necessarily come from love. The term bestow means to dole out, where you dole out small quantities, signifies the long term. I'm going to give away my, my possessions slowly to the poor and giving all possessions to feed the poor. Uh, and folks, if you do that without love, uh, without genuine love, no matter how great the sacrifice, how many people were fed, you know, the rabbis even taught that you shouldn't give more than 20%. So, people he's writing to is like the, the extreme measure is 20%, but he's saying you go build on that. You give it all the way. Hypothetical, it's an unheard of generosity. And if people received this generosity from you, you'd still be nothing without love. You'd be empty spiritually, and you'll have an empty bank account. And I could preach a message and take tithing from loveless hearts, but in heaven's bank account, that means nothing. It means nothing. And remember I said, what you don't freely give, God neither wants or needs. God loves a cheerful giver. Not only that, but in Matthew 6, 3, he says, but when you do a cheerful deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And the reason he had to write for them, like, hey, even you feeding the poor and giving it, you're nothing without love because they were doing it for show. Well, I did this, I did that. I gave this, this man gave this. 
And then he says, martyrdom without love is nothing. Verse 3 again, I give my body to be burned, but I have not love. Profits me nothing. If I delivered my body to be burned, but I have not, no love, profits me nothing. Execution by burning at the stake, a fate suffered by many Christians. But interesting to know that at the time of Paul, they did not have this kind of execution. So it could mean other things, you know, but burning at the stakes, when persecution in the early church became intense, you know, some people actually sought after martyrdom. They wanted to be martyrs because of their bravery and so forth. Why? Because they wanted to be remembered for something. They wanted to be proud. So, you know, so they get some kind of special credit in heaven. And I don't think it's cynical to recall many early Christians did not seek to be burned to remain famous. You know, they wanted to be famous and go down in history that they sacrificed themselves. But when they do that, when the sacrifice is motivated by self-interest pride, it loses its spiritual value. No matter how much a person may suffer because of him being a Christian and the testimony, he has no spiritual gain if it's ministered without love. So a loveless person produces nothing, is nothing, and gains nothing. And just these three verses, and I know we are going over time, Paul reminded us that if I knew all the languages and I can travel the world and preach in every known language to everybody, and not only that, but do it eloquently, beautifully, if I know all the mysteries, all the prophecies, and have all human knowledge. And if I give away all my belongings to the poor, and even if I burn my body for the sake of Christ, without love, it's zero. It's zero. It's zero. Just a big nothing. Life minus love equals zero. And before I end, let me show you something, how God takes seriously, how seriously he takes the priority of love. In Revelation 2, first five verses, he writes this. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? These things, he says, he holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of seven golden lampstands. I know your works. I know your works your labor, your patience, and you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and found them to be liars. You have persevered, have patience, have labored for my namesakes and have not become weary. Awesome. They're doing everything correct, right? But then in verse 4, nevertheless, all snap. I have this against you. You have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works, or else I will come too quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Boy, they work hard. They had right doctrine. But he said, I have something against you. You left your first love. And guess what? God removed the candlestick from that church, and there's been no church in that place ever since. In grace, grace, we can be in the same situation if we have not love. God can remove it. You can be in the same situation in your personal life if you don't demonstrate love. So there is to be the priority of love in our lives, in our being, personal life, church life. And the love we are talking about here is agape love. And the only way to have that kind of love is to be walking in the Spirit, and then you can produce the fruit of the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, was there ever one who loved so deeply as you? Father, I pray that you give us eyes to see that your life of love is to be our goal, our destiny, our ideal. Help us to see that all things we have in this life, and as Paul writes here at the last verse, the greatest of these in love.
And as we leave this place today, Father, today, I pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' wonderful name I pray. Amen.